So let's turn to the scriptures. The Bible tells us to fix our eyes on, on Jesus. And so in the run-up to Easter, we are fixing our eyes on Jesus in the second half or the, the latter part um, of the Gospel of John. Particularly um, chapter 14 through to the end. Particularly looking at the subjects of unity are going to come up. Um, and the subject of the Holy Spirit is going to come up. Uh, because we want to be a church in which God moves as we witness through word-based oneness. That's going to be our, our new mission statement. We're coming to that in a couple of weeks. We want to be a church in which God moves as we witness um, through word-based oneness. So unity and the work of the Spirit uh, are important. So uh, Rob took us through chapter 15 last week. I'm going to pick up uh, chapter 15, verse 26 and go through to chapter 16, verse 15. It'll come up on the screen. This is Jesus speaking. And he's speaking about the Holy Spirit. When the Advocate comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. All this I have told you, so that you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. They will do such things because they've not known the Father or me. I've told you this so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. I didn't tell you this from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me. None of you asks me, where are you going? Rather, you are filled with grief because I have said these things. But very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin because people do not believe in me. About righteousness because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own, he will speak only what he hears. And he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me. Because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. And that's why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. When we were in chapter 14, we looked particularly at six particular assurances that that Christ gives us, that when he is gone, when he has gone to be with the Father, that during times of trouble and times of trial, we can be assured because of these things that he, through the Holy Spirit, will do for us. Last week, we looked into chapter 15, where we looked at the, the allegory of Christ being the vine, and we are the branches. And as branches, we find our life in him and nowhere else. As separate individuals apart from Christ, we have nothing. Now we come on to the end part of that chapter and into the, into the next chapter and we discover that again there is mention of the Holy Spirit, that third person of the Trinity. 
Now he takes center stage, which of course he must do because of the context of what is happening. Jesus Christ in the person is leaving and he has left the Holy Spirit so that we are not left abandoned. And in this passage you'll see that there are two important themes. One is to do with the opposition of the the world against the church. That comes out quite strongly. And then secondly, the ministry of the Holy Spirit to the church in spite of that opposition. And you'll see also from verse 18 of chapter 15 onwards that the word love for a while disappears and the word that comes in its place is the word hatred. Seven times the word hatred is mentioned in the end of chapter 15, beginning of 16. And it may seem incredible to you that there are people out there who actually hate our Lord Jesus Christ and what he stands for. And we will discover that most of that hatred, in fact, comes from religious people. Within hours of speaking these words, the religious leaders of Israel will be condemning this Messiah and crying out for his blood. But this mention of of hatred and the coming of persecution is not a new message. We don't hear it here for the first time. It's a message that has come again and again and again and will keep coming throughout the epistles. Way back in the Sermon on the Mount. You'll remember what Jesus said in those uh, well-known Beatitudes. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. And then when he commissions the disciples in Matthew chapter 10, he sends them out in in pairs, out into into the villages. And he says, I'm sending you like sheep among wolves. Therefore be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard. And when he denounces the Pharisees in chapter 23, he says, therefore I'm sending you sages and prophets and teachers. Some of them will kill you, crucify. Others will flog you in the synagogues. And, persecute and pursue you from town to town. And in Mark chapter 13, in the so-called Olivet Discourse, when he's speaking about the end times, he says to his disciples, you must be on your guard. You will be handed over to local councils and you'll be flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what you to say or whatever, because whatever is given to you at the time, for it is not you speaking of the Holy Spirit. And so until Jesus returns, or until we are called home, we must live in a hostile world and face, I believe, increasingly organized and determined opposition. So the question is this this morning. How can we face this opposition effectively. What is the secret of victory? And I believe it's in this passage very clearly this morning. Our secret of victory in a hostile world is the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit of God in our lives. The secret of victory in a hostile world is the presence and the power of God's Holy Spirit in our lives. And you'll notice in John chapter 15 and verse 26 that all three of the persons of the Trinity are mentioned in one verse. In fact, they're each mentioned twice in one verse. Can you hear all three mentioned twice in one verse? Listen to it. 
when the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. The Father is mentioned twice. The Holy Spirit is mentioned twice. Christ refers to himself twice. So we have Jesus here, the Son, who's through the Father sending the Spirit. And because the Holy Spirit is a person, he's a he and not an it, and is also fully God, it means Christians, you and I, have the entire Godhead dwelling in us. If we did not have the Spirit within us, we'd be unable, unable to serve the Lord at all in this present world. And we're to walk in the Spirit. This is what uh, Paul says to the Galatians. So I say, live by the Spirit. We're to worship the spirits. Paul, speaking to the Philippians, says, For it is we who are the circumcision who worship God by his Spirit. And we glory in Christ Jesus. And we're to witness in the Spirit. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you'll be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so I say to you this morning that Christians can and will stand and withstand in the midst of the world's increasing hatred because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And this passage this morning, we could say so much about the Holy Spirit, but I'm going to restrict myself to what this passage tells us this morning. And I see in this passage three very specific ministries that the Holy Spirit has for us this morning. And the first one you'll find, uh, if, if you have to go back all the way to verse 18 of chapter 15, but that's all, all right, through to the fourth verse of chapter 16. And I believe it is this, the Spirit as comforter, or as advocate, if you like, as counselor, depending on what your version of the Bible says, all of them are accurate translations, the Spirit as comforter encourages the church. The Holy Spirit is primarily this morning our encourager. Now by the term church, I'm referring specifically to the, the, the universal body of all of those who believe in our Lord Jesus Christ not referring to this church necessarily, but to all churches where the church of God, where the church of Christ is preached, where the, where the gospel of Christ is preached, and where people believe the church is the whole body of those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But what does it mean when he talks about the world? What does that mean? Well, it's a little bit odd because it, it has different meanings as we go through Scripture. So, for example, sometimes when, when Christ talks about the world, he's speaking primarily about the creation, the world, the world that he has created. So, for example, you see John writing in the very beginning where he speaks about the, uh, the, the, the early days of creation. And he says, he, that was Christ, was in the world and the world was made by him. Now I think he's speaking there about the created world as we see it today. But then he goes on to say, the world did not recognize him. I think he's changed the meaning slightly there. It's not the created world, the, the planet Earth that didn't recognize him. It's something else. We'll come to that in a minute. And then when you see in John 3.16 where, where, where Christ says to Nicodemus, God loved the world so much that he gave his son. I think the world has taken on a slightly different meaning there. There I believe personally that it refers to humanity in general. People in the world as opposed to the created planet. And then in our passage, when he talks about the world, he seems to be talking about something altogether different because this is a hostile world. This is a world that hates. It's a world that is a society apart from and in opposition to God. It's the evil world system, if you like. And that's the world we're dealing with here this morning. 
It involves all of the people, the plans, the organizations, the activities, the philosophies, the values that belong to a society without God. We sometimes refer to it as a godless society. Some of these things are cultural, other them are just plain corrupt. But all of them have their origins in the heart and mind of sinful men and women. And therefore, everything is promoted by sinful men and women who want to enjoy and accomplish certain things. And this is why, in his very first letter, this same Apostle John says something that we need to be very, very careful of. Very careful. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, he says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. He's not talking about the created planet. Of course we're to love the sunshine and the, and the wonders of the world, but there's stuff in the world that we're not to love at all. Do not love the world or anything in the world, this godlessness. If anyone loves the world, John says, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. Paul adds to that in Romans chapter 12, when he says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. And then he goes on to say, but do not conform to the patterns of what? This world. Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So you've got this world system, this godless world system that seems hugely antagonistic towards the church. And you will discover, the more you get out there and you begin to talk about your Christianity, they will become more and more antagonistic towards you. Why? Why are they so antagonistic? Well, there are several reasons that are given right here in this passage. The reason they don't like you is because you are identified with Jesus Christ. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. We see in verse 18. As it is, you do not belong to the world anymore. Jesus is our master. We are his servants. He is greater than we are, so he receives all the honor and all the glory. But the world will never give him the honor and the glory that he deserves. The world hates him. It hates him. It must also hate us. Another reason why the world is antagonistic towards us is, is not only are we identified by, with Christ, but we are very definitely no longer citizens of this world. We don't belong to the world. Look at verse 19, chapter 15. I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. This is strong language. And you say, but this is not my experience, Rob. I don't have that experience. Everybody loves me. Well, that's great. That really is good. And I have a lot of people that love me. Well, I think they love me. I'm not quite sure. They make as if they do. But the more I find myself standing up and saying the things that I need to say in certain circumstances, the more I discover this antagonism that gets stronger and stronger and more and more. Uh, it gets quite awful. When we give our lives to Christ to become Christians, we move into a whole new spiritual position. We are now in Christ. We are no longer in the world. Physically, we still inhabit this creation, 
We still live amongst its worldliness, but we are spiritually in a totally different space. We are, as the writer of Hebrews puts it, we are partakers of a heavenly calling. The world is antagonistic towards us, thirdly, because it is spiritually ignorant and blind. They will treat you this way because of my name, verse 21, for they do not know the one who sent me. If you'd have asked Jesus' persecutors back then, the Jewish religious leaders, and you said to them, do you know God? And what would they have said? Of course we do. Of course we know God. Israel has known God for generations. In fact, we're the only ones who do know God. And yet Jesus confronts them and he says this to them, you do not know the Father. Why? Because if you did, you would know me. No wonder they went crazy. Even today, so much of the religious world claims to know God, but they refuse to bow the knee to Jesus. Their minds have been blinded. They don't know it. And finally, the world will never be honest about its own sin. I... uh, I'm going to put my glasses on and read something here. I picked up some quotes from Carl Menninger. Any of you ever read Carl Menninger's book, published 45 years ago now? He was a Jewish psychiatrist, not a Christian, and he wrote a book called Whatever Became of Sin. Well worth reading. This is what he says. The word sin, which seems to have disappeared, was a proud word, It was once a strong word, an ominous and a serious word. It described a central point in every civilized human being's life plan and lifestyle. But the word went away. It has almost disappeared. The word along with the notion, why? Doesn't anyone sin anymore? Doesn't anyone believe in sin? The world is antagonistic because it doesn't ever be honest about its own sin. Whatever became of sin, there are lots of victims, but very few sinners. There's a new dictionary coming out shortly. It's called the Oxford Junior Dictionary. It's been around for some time, but the new edition is coming out. And every year, they add new words to it, and they take words out of it. This year, in the new publication, certain words will be taken out of it. And some of the religious words that are taken out of are words like, there'll be no more appearance of the word monk or nun, They no longer exist. No more mistletoe for some reason. I'm not quite sure why. Um, No more more the word sacred or saint. That will disappear. And so will the word sin. It will no longer be in that dictionary. It seems to have disappeared. There's no more sin. There's only mistakes, slip-ups, occasional errors, even things such as certain syndromes or disorders Mental aberrations and illnesses, which in past days were called sins, but no longer. And we have a a host of unfortunate deficiencies, but no one admits to sinning anymore. And should we dare to point out that we believe in sin, it's no longer people look at us in despair and intolerance and sometimes outright hatred. But the Holy Spirit is our comforter. He encourages us. Amidst all of this, how does he do it? How does the Holy Spirit encourage us this morning? Well, I believe he does it primarily by applying the word of God 
to our hearts and our minds. That's how he does it. The Bible reminds us again and again that any opposition we suffer is not unusual and it's probably not our fault. Jesus quotes from Psalm, um, in verse, verse 25, he quotes from Psalm 35, verse 19. They hated me without a reason. And in the New Testament epistles, again and again and again, we can draw great encouragement from the Spirit. As we read verses like this, Paul says to those who strive for the faith, the faith in Philippians chapter 1, for without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but to suffer for him. And he says to his young pastor friend Timothy, he says, this is the gospel for which I am suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Therefore, endure everything for the sake of the elect. And Peter, our friend Peter, who we looked at some time back, dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come onto you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice inasmuch as you are participating in the sufferings of Christ. And our unknown writer to the Hebrews puts it this way, and I love the way he puts it, whoever he is, or maybe it's a she, I'm assuming all sorts of things here. Consider him, Jesus, who endured such opposition for sinners, from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. This is the encouragement the Spirit brings. And he uses the word of God to calm our hearts and embolden our hearts. There's nothing magical Nothing mysterious, but it is supernatural. It's not just any comforting old words of advice from, uh, from an old friend or a counselor. I've just been reading the book of Job again, and he had plenty of friends with plenty of good ideas. There's nothing like that. These are the words of God himself. They're sufficient. They're effective. When the Holy Spirit applies them to our experience, they become so effective. And I know, and I know maybe even amongst us here this morning, there are those who ask for visions. There are those who ask for dreams. There are those who ask for special words. There are those who ask for insights. But the Holy Spirit, I think, is saying to us this morning, that's okay, but you don't need it. You already have it all. You have it all, and it's right here. The Spirit, as comforter, encourages the church in these difficult times. Secondly, the Spirit, as accuser, witnesses through the church. If you look at verses 5 through 11 of chapter 16, you will see where I get this from. The Spirit, as an accuser, or one who reproves, is the one who witnesses through the church. Let's have a look and see. Now, to accuse or reprove, that's the word that's here, is, is, is a word that comes from the legal uh, field. It means to bring something to light, to expose it, to refute it, to convict, or even to pronounce a verdict. This is one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit, to accuse the world. We'll see how he does that. Now, sometimes the world might think that it is pronouncing judgment, pronouncing a verdict on Christianity. But it's not. It's the other way around. It is as though the church is pronouncing judgment on the world as we witness through the Holy Spirit to the person and work of Christ. Imagine a courtroom just for a moment. The world is in the dock 
The Christians are the witnesses. And the Holy Spirit is the prosecuting attorney. That's the picture here. We're not in the dock. The world is. The world is on trial, not the church. And yet the purpose of the church at this time, in this present stage of history, is not primarily for, to pronounce guilt and condemn, condemnation, but to offer salvation. That's our job. The trouble is when this offer of salvation is refused or ignored, condemnation necessarily follows. It's really important to understand this because we have to understand that the Spirit comes to the church. His ministry is to the church, not primarily to the world. His mission is to the church. The Holy Spirit works in the church and through the church. The Holy Spirit does not work in a vacuum. Just as the, as the Son of God, Jesus Christ, had to have a human body in order to do his work on earth, so the Holy Spirit needs a body to do his work on earth. And who is that body? That's you. That's me. The Holy Spirit needs a body to accomplish these ministries. And that body is us. Our bodies are his temples and his tools. And he wants to use us to glorify Christ and to witness to a lost world. And what is it that the Holy Spirit accuses the world of? What, is it, what did he convict the world of? Well, you see it in verse 8 through 11 of chapter 16. When he comes, he will prove the world to be wrong about sin and about righteousness and about judgment. About sin, because people do not believe in me. That's Christ speaking. About righteousness, because I am going to the Father where you can no longer see me. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. So the Holy Spirit is going to accuse the world of three things. First of all, of sin. And essentially, this is the sin of unbelief. He's going to judge them about sin because people do not believe in me. Now, the law of God as it is written, and man's own conscience can convict him or her of sins, plural. We know that. But it is only the work of the Holy Spirit through the witness of the word of God that convicts people of a sinful nature. We need to understand that. Many people are convicted of their sins because their conscience convicts them. But it is only the Holy Spirit that can convict a person that he is by nature a sinner. And it's, 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 it's that sinfulness that convicts people, not the individual sins. I think it's quite possible for individuals, in a sense, to clean up their life, to quit their bad habits and yet still head for an eternity without hope because the sinful nature has not been addressed. And this unbelief is a manifestation of their sinful nature. We see here the Holy Spirit securing a sentence of guilty against the world because of this sin of unbelief. H.L. Mencken said, uh, the American writer, uh, quite humorously in some ways, he says, there is always a solution to every human problem. It's neat, it's plausible, and it's wrong. When it comes to a solution to sin, therapy is powerless. Morality is powerless. Politics is powerless. Medicine is powerless. There's only one deliverer. That's our Lord Jesus.
The Holy Spirit is going to convict the world as well in regard to righteousness. The word righteousness here is translated as, and it's, the, it's, it's, it's a word that's used only by John. Other, other writers use another word. It refers to what is right in terms of how God sees right. Right in terms of God's revealed will. And it's clear that the righteousness of the world is nowhere near qualitatively the same or quantitatively the same as the righteousness that God is talking about. Peter talks about Jesus himself as being the holy and righteous one. He embodies this perfect standard of what is righteous. And he's, the Holy Spirit comes to the world and says, you can't stand against this. You may have your own standards of righteousness and good. And you, you call yourselves good and lots of good people, but hey, you don't meet these standards. And I got a bit confused and I had to look further because he says, convicts him about, let's go back to that verse. He says, he convicts the world about righteousness because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And I said, well, what's he mean by that? What's that got to do with righteousness? And I, I think here he's clarifying this point that his return to heaven at his ascension and his welcoming by the Father as he ascends to me is the ultimate proof that he is the perfect pattern of righteousness. The fact that he's accepted back into heaven and he takes his place where he always was for all eternity God is saying the stamp of approval. You are perfectly righteous. That's the standard. And the Holy Spirit will convict the world on the, on the basis of that standard. So we stood convicted. We are no longer convicted. Why? Because of what he's done for us on the cross. He has taken that conviction away. And it's our role as a church to demonstrate a new standard of righteousness in what we say, in what we do, and that's a bit scary. And he's here to convict the world of judgment, and I'm almost done. He convicts the world of the fact that it is liable for coming judgment. The prince of this world now stands condemned, he says. This is a reference to Satan. Of course, Satan was judged at the cross. He was found wanting, and he was defeated. So if Satan, this former angel and powerful spirit being, stands judged before God, what chance is there for men and women to escape judgment if they refuse God's offer of salvation? There is absolutely no choice, no chance. Those who choose to follow Satan will share his doom. Satan is the archetypal loser. And those who even unwittingly unite themselves with him through sin and unbelief will be eternally lost as well. And who is it who needs to tell them this? That's us. This is why witnessing and sharing the gospel is such an awesome responsibility. It is a great privilege and it is a great joy. But it is mostly a great responsibility. It is no less than a matter of life and death. Finally, we have the spirit who comes as comforter to encourage us. We have the spirit as accuser who witnesses through us. Finally, we have the spirit as teacher to guide us. Look at verses 12 to 15. I have much more to say to you, Jesus says, much more now, more than you can now hear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. And he will tell you what is next to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he is to make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. 
That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. When you carefully study the life and teachings of our Lord Jesus, you discover that he's always very careful to give his disciples only so much knowledge as they can handle at that particular time. And so you trace his teachings to them. He adds and he adds and he adds to it as they become more understanding. And the Holy Spirit's task as our teacher today is to teach us the truths we need to know, when we need to know them, and when we are ready to receive them. It's essential that this work of the Holy Spirit is never divorced as well from the ministry of Jesus himself. This is why this passage is so important. Anyone who who claims that the the Holy Spirit has somehow a different ministry to the ministry of Christ is, is, is missing the point entirely here. In fact, anyone who supposes for a minute that it is the Holy Spirit who leads them to do anything which is in any way contrary to or additional to the example of Christ or the teaching of the Bible is horribly mistaken. Jesus is the truth. The word is truth. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. And whenever the Holy Spirit is at work, the whole Godhead is at work. The statement says here, the Holy Spirit will not speak on his own. And that puzzled me for a moment. And whenever you're preparing a sermon, whenever something puzzles you, you've got to go back and figure it out because there's someone in the congregation who's puzzled as well. And if you don't say anything about it, they come to you after and say, how do you skip over that verse then? He will not speak on his own. Does that mean that the Holy Spirit will never speak about himself? I don't think so because when he's inspiring the writers of the, of the New Testament, he's constantly referring to himself. Uh, rather, it means, I think, that the Holy Spirit does never speak apart from the Father and the Son. He never manufactures a different message. We have the entire Godhead mentioned here in these verses because the Spirit does not ignore either the Father or the Son. They work harmoniously in our lives. The teaching of the Holy Spirit through the first apostles in the early church was no different to the teaching that Jesus, the Son, gave to his disciples. It's the same teaching. It's the same truth. Never forget. It's the ministry of the Holy Spirit that is there to enrich us with the treasures that are available in this this marvelous book. He enlightens us from these pages with God's truth and He enriches us with, I don't know how to put it other than to say, treasures from this this storeroom. The psalmist talks about the Spirit of God and the Word of God being like a mine of gold and silver and precious jewels. We see it in Proverbs 3 as well. And it's, it's our absolute privilege today to have the Holy Spirit who is there as our guide and our illuminator the one who brings this word alive from the pages of the Bible. And we never study this book, this word of God, to argue or to debate. That's not why we study it. We don't study it to show our superior grasp of spiritual things. We study the word of God to see Jesus and to know God better and to see how we may glorify him in our lives. And as we witness in this very hostile world, the Spirit will use this word, the word that he has taught us, 
And thus we are able to share Jesus with the world. It is our job to witness and the Spirit's job to convict. We ourselves must never take on the task of prosecuting attorney. That's the Spirit's job. We witness to the truth that he has revealed to us in this word. So I leave it with you this morning. The ministries of the Spirit are his comforter to encourage us in the midst of a very hostile world. But in this hostile world, secondly, the Spirit is there as an accuser and he witnesses through the church to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And the Spirit today is our teacher guiding us. So I say to you this morning, the Spirit as comforter is here today to encourage. Put your name at the end of that. Lee, Carrie. He's here to encourage Lee and Carrie and Martin and Sarah and Sue. He's here to encourage you. The Spirit today is as an accuser and he is here today to witness through you, through Mark and Heather, Vicky, through you as well, and Brian too. He's here to witness through you. Lorette, you're not getting away with it either. And the Spirit today is here as teacher and is here to guide you. Who else can I pick on? Mike and Anna at the back. You know, Terry and Val. Tony, you're not getting away with it either. The Spirit as teacher is here to guide you. That's his task. Is that your experience this morning as Easter comes ever closer? I, we want this to be our most blessed Easter ever. We need to ask God to give us a fresh and new experience of the power and the presence of his Holy Spirit. We're to be transformed, as Paul says, not conformed. We're to be sanctified, not isolated. And we're to rejoice in the promise of his word and not find ourselves compromising with the world. Father, we thank you again for your word. Through the ministry of your spirit, we pray that you would take this word and implant it in our hearts. Whatever it is you want to say to us this morning, say to us boldly and loudly, Holy Spirit, that we may hear it. Let us hear from you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.